0: It's good to see each of you and it's my privilege to welcome you to church or to add my welcome to that of David's and Seth's and to thank you for your commitment to this church and uh, attending whether that be here or online. I would like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis and uh, we'll be starting out in the first chapter here in a moment. And this is somewhat of a collection of, of topical messages since we finished our last series and before we get back to the one that we've been studying for over a year in the Gospel of John. And uh, these short messages have, have tried to address the situation we've been living in in the last few months. In seminary... Uh, they told us that a good introduction was very important to a message and that we should spend a lot of time in our preparation crafting that introduction because it's so important. But this week, I, I, I just have no memory of any class in seminary that told us if the situation or the, the content or the, the message itself or the passage of Scripture is very difficult It's going to make that introduction all the more difficult. Uh, It shouldn't come as a surprise, I don't think, to any of us. If you'd rather not talk about something, getting started is going to be the hardest part, right? (laughs) Today we need to talk about something that I think is probably among the most difficult things to talk about in America, especially the America we live in now. And we're going to talk about race. Race. And about racism. But we're going to do that in a way where we ask our Bibles for help. That's what we do. And I realize being a difficult topic has to do with the fact that uh, the history is long. The the, the, the pain of it all is deep. Uh, Anger is justified often. And I am acutely aware and have been over the last several weeks that there are repercussions and consequences that come both with saying something and saying nothing at all. So it kind of puts you on guard as to which to choose because there's consequences on either side. And to be careful with what you say and to make sure that what you say is loving and hopefully, just hopefully, the The conversation can last long enough to see one another's heart in the whole discussion. I believe that uh, the church is in great need in this respect, and that our day calls for pastors and Christian leaders, uh, not just in this church, but in all the churches from coast to coast, uh, to think about this theologically. And I'm not saying by that that we don't think about it theologically, but that we think about it theologically first. Because as a church, that's the only place that's going to be thinking about this theologically. And as Christians, we we need to do this. Again, what I don't mean by this is that we've forgotten the very basics that we've we've even sung about already today or have mentioned in weeks prior. Uh, We know that every person from every race has been made in the image of God and has inherent worth and dignity. We know that. We teach our children that. We know that the Bible presents a beautiful picture of heaven where people from every language, tongue, and tribe gather around the throne to worship the risen Christ at the end of this world. We know that. We know that we're called to love our neighbor. We've been talking about that a lot lately. Just in what we've studied. Either Jonah or studying the parables. And we know that the Lord hates injustice. These aren't things that we're not familiar with. What I want to focus on today. Is that we need to start the discussion with these things. With our theology. And then see how the things that are happening in our culture line up with the theology we've had for 2,000 years. The opposite of that would be, okay, we'll start our discussion with what's happening today and in in an environment where we're so divided on what's happening today, even within our churches, it's a longer discussion with a lot more opportunity f- for trouble to start with the conversation with what's happening and then work our way back to the scripture i think it's it's it, the better way is to start with the scripture and then work our way to what's happening even though that might be a slower process i believe it's a safer process and It's all based off the principle from the passage of Scripture that just says, this is Paul, as if he's exhausted. Let God be true if the rest of us are liars. We'll let him speak first. Now this isn't (laughs) isn't by any stretch, uh, anything other than just getting the conversation started. There's so much to talk about. And someone might ask, and if they do, that will make at least two of us. Uh, what do pastors who spend most of their training in biblical languages and and texts have to say on current issues that cover the, the whole nation? And I think if we're asking uh, the court of public opinion, they'd probably say not much. But within this room and rooms like this, if we're talking about issues like sin and guilt, and holiness, and justice. The Bible speaks authoritatively on those things. It has spoken, and it will always speak on those things. But if you're looking for where the word racism is found in the lists of sins, either in the Old or New Testament, you're not going to find that word. But what you will find, if you understand your Bibles, is that the Bible itself has thoroughly mapped... The entirety of the depraved human heart where racism is found. It's a heart problem. Bible talks about our heart. So we'll examine it to examine our own hearts. And then we'll know what to do. Now, I feel uh, many pastors have found themselves at a loss over the past several weeks. And not just on this topic, but what to say about the coronavirus and what to say about November. Uh, and, And when it's appropriate to speak and when it's appropriate to listen, when it's appropriate just to be quiet and just to learn. And in the time that we've been away from our normal, I've leaned on... A number of pastors and theologians most of them in written form some of them I've sat down with trying to gain clarity on the whole issue before attempting to say anything about it and much of what you'll hear over the next half hour uh, was put together on the basis of their input that said, the image of God is the basis of the discussion. And it seems like an obvious and already agreed upon foundation for talking about race. But my hope is that over the course of the next half hour, we're, we're going to learn that the doctrine of the image of God has more to teach us and more ways perhaps to correct us than we've ever thought at first glance. Uh, the doctrine itself is highlighted three times in the opening chapters of Genesis. And that's why I had you turn there. And we're going to read at least three passages. We'll, we'll look through them. And then for the rest of our time together, we're probably just going to mention the references. There will be many. And it it, it might uh, be worth our time to keep on track and, and not be here all day uh, to just write those references down and look at them later. But... Let's all look at chapter 1, verse 26. And this is just, I think, going to be repetition for what most of us in this room already know and are familiar with. But in the 26th verse of the first chapter of Genesis, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then verse 28, and God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, you'll need to fast forward a bit to uh, chapter 5, and that is a chapter of generations, genealogies, you know, the the stuff you enjoy reading so much, Uh, between what happened with Adam and Eve and their sons, Cain and Abel. And then, uh, between what happens in chapter 6 with uh, Noah and the ark, at the, at the beginning of this chapter, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, He created them, and He blessed them, and named them man when they were created. Now turn all the way to chapter 9. This is the third reference of the, of the image of God in uh, the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. And this is the new covenant, really. After, the, basically, the reset button has been pressed on the whole earth. Everybody but Noah and his family have drowned. And the rainbow's been given as a promise, won't happen again. And this is God making a covenant with Noah. He says, and for your lifeblood, in verse five, nine, 5, I will require a reckoning from every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And verse 6 kind of clears it up. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in His own image. God is saying, I won't tolerate that. God takes all sin seriously, but he, he will not take one man killing another man who's made in His image. And that goes for every man. And it's this is a basis for capital punishment. But what we see here is three different places, opening chapters of the Bible, God gives us this doctrine of the image of God, which is the basis for any of our discussions on what's been taking place in our country for the last few weeks. Let's ask the Lord for help. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our time to study here together this morning. Lord, would you open our eyes, and would you open our ears, and would you open our hearts. And Lord, may you strip us of all our preconceptions... All the things that we use to justify ourselves. All the things that we might think would put us in a place where we're not touched by certain things that other people are. Lord, give us an understanding of what it means to be made in your image and nothing else. And then, Lord, correct our thinking, correct our behavior, correct our speech, correct our attitude. As you see fit based on the power of your word. May you be true if everyone else is a liar. Lord, we thank you for this in your precious name. Amen. Now, we've just looked at what the Bible tells us at the beginning as to the image of God and what that means. But the image of God has not always been easy to define. Uh, We've had trouble with that over the years. People have, have stretched what that means. Some say it means more, some say it means less. And it it can be confusing. Uh, From these passages that we've just looked at, though, that's why I wanted to begin with these. Older theologians, and when I say older theologians, I mean we've we've had theology for a long time, but since Christ left us and ascended into heaven, it's been about 2,000 years' worth of church history. So when I say older theologians, I'm meaning... It could be uh, millennia old, not just, you know, guys that are older than younger theologians who happen to be alive at the time. Uh, Classically speaking, these older theologians tended to emphasize the structural aspects of the image of God. And what is meant by structural aspects is man's capacity for intelligence or rationality or morality, beauty or worship. You know, we have the capacity not only to recognize that something is beautiful as as opposed to something that might be a mess or, or, or destroyed, the ability to think through things, the ability to speak and have conversation with one another, uh, but the ability to actually see God as who He is and worship Him for it. The animals don't have this. They all display the glory of God in His created work, but they don't talk to Him. They don't know right from wrong. They can't do math problems. Uh, We have something they do not. This separates us. And these are structural uh, categories of the image of God that makes us different than the animals and as what God has told us. I I think I've always found it best to just consider this as uh, man's... uh, uh, Standard equipment. You know, when you buy a car, certain cars just have uh, standard equipment from the factory before you add on the bells and whistles. All the cars come with this standard equipment. Every man, woman, and child comes with standard equipment from their creator. These structural categories. Uh, Even um, unborn babies growing in the womb or people with severe impairments or people... um, Toward the end of their life, even in that way, which most people would say have a diminished quality of life, they still have the capacity that they're much different than anything else other than what God created them to be in His own image. Now, having said that, that's one way to look at the image of God. More recent theologians have focused on the functional aspects of the image of God. It's a little different. And that is, they identify God's image more with our character than our equipment. We've all got the same equipment, but we don't all do the same thing with that equipment. Some of us are, are, are good uh, image bearers of God. We, we not only look like God, but we act like Him too, and some do not. In the New Testament, let me give you a few verses. Just write down these references. I'll read through them quickly. One is Romans eight twenty nine. And this is a, a passage uh, Paul is explaining to us what it means to be saved, but he says, "For those whom he foreknow, foreknew, he also predestined to be listen to this, conformed to the image of his Son. Christ has an image that we are being conformed to when we're saved, in order that he might be the first for, uh, firstborn among many brothers. First uh, Corinthians 15:49. Just as we've been born in the image of the man of dust, that'd be Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So this is describing a difference. We've got the human image of what we got from Adam, but we're also going to have the image of the man in heaven. We're working our way toward that. And then 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. Uh, this is beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that even He appears, or that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is, and everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. In other words, we're trying to, to more today than yesterday look like the Lord, and more tomorrow than we do today, it's a process. Um, we bear God's image, but we're, we're poor representations of Him that Jesus has, has made possible that we can, by degrees, by sanctification, work our way toward this glorification where we will look like Him. Like, like Adam and Eve looked like God, not only in their image, but in their action. Before sin ever entered the picture... And broke our relationship with God. And the whole world has been fighting and arguing and killing one another ever since. Jesus came to to unwind all that, that that we've destroyed since Eden. So according to passages like these, the image of God is not just what we have as our equipment. It is our eternal goal. It's what we're not only called to be, but what we're called to do. And it's obvious that something was lost in the garden, something that Jesus has come to restore, and it's going to require a lot of work to make it happen. Uh, Kevin DeYoung, which is wondrously helpful in this discussion, makes the point that both aspects teach us something important about the image of God, whether we're looking at it from the Old Testament, structural, or the New Testament, which is functional. Both of, us, both of them teach us something about what it means to live in the image of God. But the Bible allows us to say a whole lot more about the functional, what we do, than the structural, what we have. Now, I've, I've taken several minutes to explain the difference between that. But you be the judge, you tell me. Just knowing that we come from the factory made by God... With his own image. And it's such an image. And it has such sanctity. That if anyone would kill a human. They pay for that with their own life. But there's not a lot more to be said about that. It's standard equipment. We've all got it. And it should level the playing field. And and pretty much end any differences we have between us. But it hasn't. We almost just look at it and say. Yep I understand that. And uh, always have. But we've got a whole New Testament that talks about how our whole existence on this earth is to be conformed to the image of Jesus who's saved us to make it possible to get us back to the way we were when He made us in the first place in the garden. Jesus had no problems with other people. I use that word other. Jesus had no problems with with race. He (laughs) made them all. So, the discussion, I think, where we're going to find the most help is where we let the Bible uh, take us apart and put us back together on, on this end of the idea. On the functional aspects. We might look like the Lord in our standard equipment, but do we act like Him as a Christian? So, as image bearers, our Creator God has made us to be. What responsibilities do we have? And this is just a, a basic rundown of, of our job. In other words, what does the Bible expect out of those who not only have God's image, but call Him their Savior? And uh, we'll go through these three, and then we'll look at some, some practical stuff. How, how, we understand, okay, how do we obey? So number one, we can say at least this. Human beings are representatives of God. As bearing God's image and as having been saved, we're His representatives. Whether we're good representatives or not, we represent Him. When Jesus was asked, you might recall how this took place in the, the Gospels. He was asked if the Jews should pay taxes. And uh, he asks if anyone has a coin. Let him see it. And he asks, okay, whose image, whose likeness is is on this coin and whose inscription? And they say, Caesar's. He says, well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, give to the Lord what's the Lord's. And pretty much shut down the argument they came to him for. They didn't have anything to say but what he was demonstrating there is that uh caesar has his rightful place his rule it's his his government it's your money your his money you're spending and uh that coinage there was basically to display his his authority and his rule uh over rome and those that were subjugated under it and uh just like the statues that caesar would have that's his way of saying uh This is my likeness, and it demonstrates I'm in charge. Well, that's here on earth, but as far as God is concerned, there are seven and a half billion images of God walking around. It it demonstrates His authority and His rule over this earth, whether the majority of those seven and a half billion understand that or not. Furthermore, when we covered this in Genesis, as representatives, we're called to be rulers and stewards. He put us over the animals. We're supposed to have dominion over that. The works of, of His hands, we're, we're stewards of. We see that in Psalms 8 and, and again in Genesis 1. So we're representatives. Second, human beings are made to be in relationship with God. He didn't walk in the cool of the evening, to talk with the animals. He did that with Adam and Eve. He made them for a relationship with him. Unlike all other creatures, Adam was created for covenant. That's the Old Testament's way of of saying relationship. And it it carries a lot more uh, depth than our definition of the word relationship. Uh, In Hosea 6-7, we see how this is scriptural. Now, Michael Horton, he said this, the image of God is not something in us as much as something between us and God. The image of God's also between us. It's, it's a relationship. Uh, you might say that uh, if you've heard my father speak, you might say, you sound like him. Uh, I heard one person say, you know, your father preaches like you do. I said, no, <laughs> no. That's backwards. I, I, I sound like him, or I preach like him. So the the image of whatever our family is, it's something between us too. And to be an image bearer is to be sort of a creature who can know, serve, and self consciously worship their creator. The animals don't have that capacity. It's not just that you can know God. And that you were created for that very purpose. But you you were. Uh, It's not just an add-on. That's something in addition to the standard equipment. No, that's the way it was intended from the beginning. To have a relationship with the Lord. And then third. Human beings are made to reflect the righteousness of God. And this is probably the, the, the most heavy point of the message. Before we ask ourselves, all right, what does this mean? The New Testament defines the image of God as the new self. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's Ephesians 4.24. If you want to look that up later. Ephesians 4.24. It calls this image of God the new self. It's likened after God and it's true righteousness and holiness. And although sin has marred all that, the divine image in man has been marred, we can still be renewed by God in Christ's likeness so as to increasingly reflect His image. That's Colossians 3, 9, and 10. This is where we'll need to kind of hang out in our mind. The image of God is really having to do with how much we look like Him, act like Him, think like Him, talk like Him, love like Him, speak like Him, be quiet like Him. But the image of God is really the image of of Jesus. Because none of this business about being made in the image of God is going to make any sense to anybody who doesn't know this book if we don't know Jesus and act like Him? This all goes back to our study of John. How in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. But then in verse 14, the the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. None of us on this planet know much about the God in heaven other than what we see in the Old Testament. But to get to know Him on a personal level like we do in the New Testament... Is to know Jesus. We are made in God's image, but Jesus is God's image. Does that make sense? So that any of those who are made in God's image that don't look or act like God's image, which is Jesus, is a terrible disconnect. not a word for it. It's a problem. That's where we live. We're sinners. That's why we need a cross. That's why we need salvation. If, if people are honest with themselves and can get through a few years of life without realizing how messed up they really are, and not just them, but everybody, then something is, is wrong. Jesus is the only way that's going to help us with this. Let me read to you from Colossians chapter 1. He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. God controls it all. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. That means He was here first. And in Him all things hold together. If He was gone, it all fly apart. Verse 18. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that everything He might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's our only hope for peace, by the way. No cross, no blood, no Jesus taking away our sins. No fix. No fix. So the gospel is the message about the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. And by His Spirit, we can be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's 2 Corinthians three seventeen and 18. So put another way, the image of God is now this side of the New Testament. All about Christ. Just to say that again. Now I suppose there are whole entire seminary courses on the image of God. We've just run through the basics over a few minutes. Uh, just scratching the surface. But I think there's enough of the big pieces in place to start talking about, alright, what good does this do us in the middle of a, of a country who's having a lot of, a lot of trouble? Again... Kevin DeYoung is very helpful here. And uh, these are his points. Um, changed up a little bit of the wording and I'll apply them different. But here's your three points of of what to do. Or where to start, perhaps. First and most obviously, the image of God speaks to the inherent worth and dignity of every human being. I know I've already said that, but to not to... Not to use it as both what to understand and how to obey, I think would, would would be to move too fast. The world is talking a lot about individual worth and dignity. But it is unclear upon what basis secular voices can make such a claim. Here's where we're going to understand where the Bible gives us some, some rock under our feet. Where the rest of the world who do not believe their Bibles, can't make such a claim. Question is, the world is asking, is there any universal reason that every human being should be treated with respect? They say yes. We might say, uh, on what basis? Does Does the worth of each person exist prior to and independent of our person or our legal determination? Is that first before you're born some would like to say yes we know what our bibles say they answer these things but in a world without a bible and if this is just one big accident that happened when something exploded and we're just one animal that's better than the animal behind it survival of the fittest then really we're all on our own and this discussion is over But the Bible answers this. The Christian doctrine of the image of God can answer this. Assumptions cannot. Most Christians understand this. I really believe that. But the question persists, why why are we still plagued with race and racism if we believe this stuff? That's where the rub is. We believe we're all made in the image of God. That should be the end of it. But it hadn't been the end of it. So the problem is we're not acting like it. Haven't acted like it. Don't understand it, perhaps? This is a Christian nation. supposed to be. used to be. It was when this problem began. There's no doubt about that. Left one continent to come to another so we could worship our God in freedom and that was about where this whole problem began sad reality is that at times Christians have overlooked or flat-out denied the image of God in those that they deem to be different from themselves it could be as easy as understanding the image of God in structural terms only it's just our standard equipment For example, the intellectual attributes. So the thinking might go, well, I am able to think and I'm smart. This person over here is not smart. They can't think. I have more of the image of God than they do. So would you say your child has less of the image of God until they grow up and become as smart as you are? Some of this stuff doesn't wash but it's convenient and can be used at times if we need to you know, justify certain things. Again, we'd like to think every Christian knows this. But here's where I'll just start saying the things that are uncomfortable. White Christians in this country have not always acted like they believed that. And the further back in time, maybe the more that it's easier to see it in history, but it's still going on now. To be true, slavery in America began with greed. It was a business first. But then when your Bible tells you this isn't right, you've got an option. You let your Bible correct you, or you can just make the Bible say what you want it to say. And then that's where the racism grows. Because those two people groups didn't know each other at that point in history. They came together in enterprise and, and business and, and, and empire building. Instead of letting their theology correct their practice, they developed perverse ways to conclude that blacks were in fact not their neighbors. They didn't fall f- Not fellow image bearers and even... The hardest part for me to comprehend is not not fully human. If if that's hard to see or to understand, World War II was fought over one group of people thinking that they were superior to another group to the tune of six million dead Jews. They had ways that they'd look at their bodies and, and say, this is inferior to ours. They took all that they had. They processed them through prison camps. They took the hair they cut off the heads of the women and stuffed mattresses with them. That's how bad it bothered them once they figured out that this book right here tells them that they are better than this other group. And the American brand of this just had to do with hey we've got to we've got to keep this business running." For many white Christians, the way to make their Christianity and their slavery fit together was to convince themselves that the slave was not the same kind of person that they saw in themselves. It's right back to the, the who is my neighbor? And, and if that parable doesn't, doesn't lay waste to most of this, I don't know which does. But the idea that was put to Jesus is, who is my neighbor? You tell me who my neighbor is, then I know how, who to be neighborly to. And those that are not my neighbor, I'll cross off my list, I don't need to worry about them. Jesus finished it by saying who was neighbor to the guy that needed help. It's not who's your neighbor, it's who you're a neighbor to. That's what's going on here. Even now, today, we should all do well to examine our hearts and see if there's any part of us when encountering someone much different than ourselves that wonders if we're not actually made of something more refined or more noble or more godlike, and if that sounds foreign to you, think back to school and tell me whether or not you were the best in the class at introducing yourself to the new kid. The reason why you sit and point and talk to others about who's that is because they're different. It's the other person, right? The, is the other person my neighbor? Well, either you you understand your scripture, you're taught that way. Or you work off the standard equipment of the flesh ever since what happened in in Eden and you're going to take up for yourself, right? Let's move a a little further. The more different we are, the easier it is to fall into the mindset of that lawyer who stood up to Jesus and the verbiage is clear, willing to justify himself, asked, who is my neighbor? He wanted to justify himself. He had some problems. He hadn't been doing what he's supposed to do as an image bearer of God. So he's looking for a loophole in Scripture to justify the fact that something's off. Let's look at another one. Second. We would do well to start with what we have in common rather than what separates us. Just like we'd do well to start with our theology first as Christians and then find out where our hearts are. We'd do well when we're talking with other people to start with what we've got in common rather than what separates us. Start with what separates us. It might be forever before we get to something that we have in common. But The truth is we all have much more in common than we have that's different. Just by what we've studied in the scripture already. Let's just in our heads. Okay. Think of a group. Of Asians. Black people. White people. uh, Native Hawaiians. You name it. Every single different group. On the planet. And put one of them in one room. What is one thing you can say is the same about all of them. Because you could go on all day about, okay, what, what's different about all these people? Start with what's the same. What can be said, what is true of every single person in that room? And if you want to use it this way, of every person on the planet, that's the experiment. One, they are all made in the image of God. No doubt about that. Two, they all inherited original guilt and original sin from Adam. They all suffer from the mistake that happened in the Garden of Eden. And three, they all need the imputed righteousness of Christ in salvation to be saved from that sin and be united with Christ. We're all made by God. We're all sinners. And without Jesus, none of us are saved. That is true of, of everybody. We start there. That doesn't make us any more special or any worse. We're we're all just as lost as anyone else. We're all just as sinful. And we're all just as much made by God's hands. That is a huge platform to have all types of discussion if we believe those things are true. So we need to be reminded that before there is the unique experience of being black or white in this country or anything else, there is a shared human nature first and just so just so we have this conversation as honestly as we can make no mistake for much of our nation's history white people have held an oppressive power over black people that's our history that makes for a lot of different experiences As time progresses, the experiences, generations deep, are affected by that past, one way or another. And most of us, from where we live and how we were grown up, have no capacity to relate to those experiences. Trying to relate to those and talk about what's different is going to be an incredible exercise. But to start with the fact that we're all God's children, we're all lost, we all need Jesus, is immensely helpful. The point I, I think is important to make here with this those inherent differences, because there are a lot of differences, there are a lot of things you could say about all those people in the room that are different from one another. But those differences are not intrinsic, they're not built in. That's not standard equipment. That's the process of our culture and where we were raised and how much we've been loved and all those things. As far as the standard equipment goes, we're all the same. So you could say in other places, at other times, the differences among people have played out between white and white people or black and black people or Arab and Jew or Chinese and Japanese. Romans and enslaved Romans people have been doing Sinful things against other human beings for a long time. That doesn't make it any easier. That just helps us look at it more honestly. Honestly, So there's not a white nature or a black nature, an Asian nature or Hispanic nature. There's only human nature. And it's sinful. And we need Jesus to help us. Let me read to you directly from Kevin DeYoung. This is something he said, and I think it helps here. When we start with black or white instead of the image of God, we shut each other out of our shared humanity, conducting ourselves as if we can hardly speak to one another in the same way or learn from one another in the same way or love one another across those differences. When you meet someone of a different race, you should look at that man or woman as someone more like you than different, someone who deep down has the sort of fears, sins, needs, and aspirations. We ought to think, this is my neighbor with an immortal soul. And though he may have different experiences for better or worse that I have or have not had, I am face to face with someone who has been made in the same image as I. That's starting with what you have in common first. Third, and this might be more practical than the rest of them, but this is, is again, is, is from this man's work. I think it's very observant and it's very helpful. We should be slow to attribute to individual image bearers. That's, that's everybody on the planet. The unfavorable characteristics associated with a broader group identity. Especially when that broader group identity was not freely chosen. Let me say it again. We should be slow to attribute to individual image bearers the unfavorable characteristics associated with a broader group identity. We've all got those attached to us. Especially when that broader group identity was not freely chosen. You remember the passage where James is talking about cleaning up our speech and watching our tongue? And he says that we should not curse man who's made in God's image. And he talks about how the same shouldn't come out. You shouldn't praise God and curse the man in his own image out of the same mouth. It's kind of a more dignified way of uh, someone who says, You kiss your mama with that mouth? But it's true. It's, it's, It's very true. And according to James, he's saying other things, but he's at least saying this. The person you are about to curse stands before you irreducibly as someone made in the likeness of God. Whatever else you might think about him or want to say about him, no matter what sins he's committed, you first must reckon with him as an individual who is in the image of the Creator before he's anything else. Where we live today, even though there's a lot of, of, of uh, there's a lot spent as far as attention, on maintaining our own individual identity. Everybody wants to be their own person, uh, and that's and a conglomeration of all different types of things they like, and, and they want the world to look at who they are individually and accept all of that. And, and I, I, I understand all that and how it works. But at the same time, our culture is, is really grouped up into certain groups and categories that people belong to. And it's almost impossible for any of us to look at another stranger and not immediately looking at what they wear and, and how they walk and, and how they're speaking and their accent and their color. All of that goes into this processor in our head and we begin to thin slice and sum, sum them up as to who we think they are. When the truth is, All of that's on the surface, and and we have no clue as to who they are on the inside. Because we can't read minds, we never have been able to. And part of that is just judgment. Some of it we use as defense mechanisms. I walked out into the garage, I told you about this, and almost stepped on a snake. I didn't need to get out my science book and figure out okay, it doesn't have any legs. And it it looks like a snake. I should probably get away from it because I'm very scared of them. We need thin slicing. It's part of something God gave us. But we can use it in ways He never meant for it to be used where we stand in judgment on on someone else. Uh, This isn't meant to be cute or or to get you smiling or laughing. But maybe it will help you understand how we do this. I know people who will think less of someone based solely on who they root for as far as a sports team. I told you not to do that. It's not supposed to be funny. But but you know what I'm saying. And, and what are they doing when they look at the person and think less of them? What they're doing is all the stuff they dislike about the, the team, and maybe the way it's coached, and maybe the way they look at that sport philosophically and how they go about winning the game. And all that that they dislike, they take all that from that group and put it on the shoulders of this guy who said, I'm rooting for that team. When they really might not know anything about why they like that team. It might be because that's where the daddy graduated or that's where they graduated. People fight about this stuff. Get kicked out of stadiums over this stuff. It's thin slicing. It's thin slicing. This problem we've got in our country is is not only, but largely because of that type of thing. It's not fair to look at a fellow image bearer and take all the things that may very well be not good from one group and say, because this one I think is part of that group, I'm going to charge this one for all that I don't like about this group. And vice versa. when we live our lives trying to figure out whose shirt is cleaner, it's always a defeating purpose. All of our shirts are filthy. We're sinners. We need salvation. Charging things that are associated with groups to individuals is not a way to get through this. So here's a concluding thought because we're We're out of time. On the heels of that last point, where I think some of the most hateful things and thoughts we've ever said or thought have been aimed at people we didn't even know. From this discussion, here's what we've learned today we are able to look like God because He made us that way, we're made in His image. That's why we can think. That's why we can talk. That's why we can love. That's why we can do what we do. He made us that way. We're able to look like Him. But we're able to act like God only because His Son died in our place and gave us the option of choosing something other than a sinful behavior. We would be fools to think that we could solve this problem on our own we're going to need this book we're going to be in need of our own examination let the word examine us we're going to probably need to be quiet at least in proportion to the amount of ears we have as to the amount of mouths we have listen at least twice as much learn from people Sometimes being quiet is good if you're learning in the process. Let me read to you the last passage of scripture. Well, it was two weeks ago, is how we concluded a passage because I thought that's how it fit. I think this is the way. It works again. And I'm a big fan of repetition. You can't you can't wear out these passages of scripture. Even if you have them memorized. This is one we should probably memorize. But This is Titus chapter 3, and this should put us in our place, the place we need to be, the place we understand who we are and what's expected of us. I'll just begin reading in the first verse, and we'll read through chapter 7, or verse 7. It's Titus chapter 3. Remind them, this is in summation of what has been said, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient To be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. To be gentle. To show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish. And when he says we ourselves were once, it's only because of Jesus that it's any different. Foolish, disobedient, led astray. whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, sometimes it seems we have lots of words to pray, and sometimes we have few. This is probably one of those situations. Lord we've, we've been a mess since the day we were born if the contents of our of our mind were printed out and on pages and distributed Lord we wouldn't only just want to die the world couldn't take it we're all wrong We're all sinful. We're all selfish. We'll all grab what we can get if no one else gets anything. If we don't have Your saving work in our life to make us selfless and loving and kind and all the things that that You are. Lord, start with us there. Lord, we deserve our, our punishment but you came to the cross took it for us so having been forgiven Lord may we be the first to forgive everybody else and the first is probably to forgive ourselves for just not paying attention Lord I ask that you'll do a work in our, our nation's culture that you'll heal it but I ask that you start with me In my home. And in the homes represented by this church. And Lord, in that respect, you be God. And I'll be quiet. In your name, amen.